0: This week at Hope Point. If we're going to live a life of mission filled with the Holy Spirit, what we should do as the people of God is know the love of Christ for you. Do everything you can to study and know and comprehend the love of Christ for you. Be here on Sundays with the people of God singing about Christ together and learning from Richard as he preaches us through the word so that we can know the love of Christ for us. That's the whole point of a sermon is to engage your affections to love Jesus. Read your scriptures every day so that that the Bible is all about Jesus and as I read it, I'm going to see the beauty of the gospel and I know the love of Christ for me. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as our teacher speaks to us from God's holy word. Well, as you can see on the sermon title here on the screen, that we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. So, if you have a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 16. Uh, we're going to be diving into there. Uh, um, as I was thinking and praying about what to preach on, uh, when. Richard, Caleb, and Dan had asked me to preach today. I told them what I was thinking about uh, a sermon on living on mission that we as a church are called, because if you're a Christian, you're called to live on mission. uh, And that's what I was thinking. And they said, this is great because over the next couple weeks, we're going to be doing an emphasis on missions and what the church is doing around the world. And so this could be a good week one to kickstart us into that mindset of living on mission. And so consider this maybe the uh, the beginning uh, sermon, uh, sermon one as they're going to go into this over the next couple weeks, which I'm excited uh, for us to to see and understand of what uh, Hope Point's going to be doing and what we already are doing uh, all around the world. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 16. Um, If you know me, you know I have a lot of kids, and so there's birthdays all the time at our house. Uh, This past Friday, we had a birthday party, and I was talking to one of the teenagers that was there uh, from Hope Point about the sermon and uh, Daniel Davis, and he was asking me, hey, what what are you preaching on? And I was telling him about Acts 16 and living on mission, and he said, hey, that's part of the Hope Point mission living on mission. I was like, you're right. I should put that in the intro. And so uh, the mission of Hope Point is applaud God, follow God, and live on mission. And so we're going to dive into number three today. The sermon is about number three. So thank you for a great idea for an intro. Uh, Push your teenagers to think deeply about the Lord. If they can do trigonometry, they can do theology. So um, teach them deeper than they're capable of, and they'll come to it. Um, Anyway, Uh, So we're gonna be in Acts chapter 16 today. Now, what I wanna do is to help us get a mindset and a frame on what I'm doing whenever I say uh, that we're all gonna be living four fundamentals of living a life of mission. So what does that mean, uh, a life of mission? It means that every single one of us who are Christians are supposed to be living as missionaries. And you say, okay, I'm not a missionary. I've never been overseas. I don't live overseas. I've never even been on the Alaskan trip. So this doesn't count for me. It does. It does count for you. Every Christian in this room, if you're a believer in Christ, is a missionary. A missionary is someone that regularly shares the gospel of Christ with as many people as they can. And we're all commanded to do that if we're believers. So every Christian in this room must think of themselves as a a missionary, even if you never go on a missionary trip or even if you never move overseas and you live in Spartanburg County the rest of your life. Um, Because every Christian in this room has already been personally commissioned by Jesus as a missionary. How's that? Well, I'm gonna tell you in just a second. Most of you probably know where I go when, uh, when we say we've been personally commissioned to share the gospel. But let me just take one little little step here and to say, share the gospel. And you may say, well, what is the gospel? If that's what I'm supposed to do, let's just rehearse all together because it's super important we know what we're supposed to say. First Corinthians, this won't be on the screen. First Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church. Uh, He's well into the letter. He's talking to Christians. And so he's reminding Christians of the gospel. And he says, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel that I preached to you. And then in verse three, he says what the gospel is. So if you're like, you know, I know I'm supposed to share, man, what is it? How can I succinctly say the gospel? Well, here it is, verse three, 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered what was first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter the 12, and then 500. Like there's real evidence that he was resurrected. So that's the gospel. Christ died in accordance with the scriptures for our sins. We're sinners and Christ died for us, but he didn't just die because there's no, there's no hope there, that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. So because he was raised, he defeated Satan's sin and death on our behalf. He lived the perfect life. And so we get all of his righteousness when we trust in him. And he took all of our sin at the cross. And so we're to go and proclaim that message. Jesus is the only way to salvation. John fourteen i I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. There is no salvation outside of Jesus. Every religion is wrong. Christianity is right and only Christianity. Uh, uh, Acts 4.12, no salvation under any other name except for the name of Jesus. That's what we say. So we're all missionaries and we're all going to proclaim that particular message. So you may say, well, okay, I'm not a missionary. I've never been to a foreign country. And so how does this apply to me? Well, I don't have a whole lot of time to exegete this text, but I wanna at least help us all see how you have been and I have been personally commissioned by Jesus to be a missionary. Matthew chapter 28, this is the last thing he says to everybody. And Jesus came and said to them, go therefore, that go is telling us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's the commission, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So this is the commission to the disciples and therefore every Christian that's ever going to live that we are to go make disciples. John Piper says it this way, Jesus commanded us to go make disciples among every people. Christianity is a missionary faith. We aim to make disciples in every group. That means every single country in the world and build up the church among every people. We spread our faith by the proclamation of the great news, the good news, and persuasion by the demonstration of love. We are to be like no other religion in the world. So one other text, if that wasn't enough, Second Corinthians chapter 5, where we've been given what he says the known as the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So here it is, this reconciliation, this ministry is for every new creation. If you're a Christian, then you're now a new creation. And here it is. The old passed away, the new's come. All this all this saving is from God. He's the one that does it through Christ Jesus. And he reconciled us to himself as new creations. And he gave us what's known as the ministry of reconciliation. So if you're a new creation and you're a Christian, you have the ministry of reconciliation. There's no some of us, It's no just the church staff, it's no just the pastors in the places. It's every single one of us. Every single one of us has this. That is, oh, I went too far. That is, oh, okay, I'm all backwards. Let's go backwards. Okay, there we go. I'm new on that. All right, so that is, Christ Jesus was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He died on the cross for that, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We've been given this, He's literally entrusted us with telling people about Jesus. That's the primary means of salvation is Christians telling lost people to be saved. God does miraculous things, but the primary means of salvation is the natural means of us telling people. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. This is amazing. God making his appeal through us, Literally, when you tell someone the gospel, the words that you speak, the Holy Spirit comes behind that and literally makes an appeal that goes to their brain and God makes the appeal into the heart. And if they're ready to be saved, he saves them. We've been given this ministry of reconciliation. And so when we go to people, we look at them and we say, we implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to him. So we've all been given this ministry ministry of reconciliation. As my evangelism professor would say, then therefore life is a missionary trip. So take it. Life is a missionary trip. So we're dropping in on the book of Acts. We're going to see the greatest missionary that's ever lived, Paul. Uh, He lived with absolute reckless abandon for Christ. And this isn't just a sermon for missionaries. This isn't just for us to say, well, I can't approach this text with the mindset that's for the missionaries, not for me. I want you to hear this, and this is for, if you don't listen to anything I say, listen to this first part of the intro. Everything I learn, I want you to have this mindset, everything I learn about being a missionary in this particular sermon from the life of Paul completely applies to my life right here, right now in Spartanburg, South Carolina, with every single person that I ever come into contact for the rest of my life. Everything you're gonna hear are about these four fundamentals of living a life on mission applies to every single one of us forever. So Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas in prison is the little title in the ESV that I have here. There are two other people with them. We know that Luke and Timothy at least are with them. In verse two, it tells us Timothy joins. And as you are going through the book of Acts, there's a shift from uh, they, they, they to we, we, we. And therefore, that means Luke has finally joined. And so he's writing from a perspective of, I'm with them now. And we are in the wheeze." You can see that at verse 11. Uh, we made a direct voyage from Samothrace. And so we know that Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, at least those four are here with them. And so as we're dropping in, I want you to kind of know what's going on. Uh, they are actually literally in Philippi right now. Um, he would later write a letter to this particular uh, city. So as we go kind of through the meta narrative of scripture from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, we're after the cross and we're diving in on where Paul's trying to make converts. And so uh, he's told to go there in verse nine. We're not going to look at verse nine, but as he's on a missionary trip, a Macedonian man comes to him and says, hey, Paul, come to Macedonia. Philippi is a city in the region of Macedonia. Uh, It's like a South Carolinian said, hey, Paul, come to South Carolina. And he goes, okay, I'll go to Spartanburg. Um, So he goes to Philippi. Um, and so as he's, so he's, he has this missionary, uh, this dream where a Macedonian says come and he's, he's already had one convert. We can see in verse 11, he had a convert, a lady named Lydia, a very wealthy woman, has come to know Christ. She was going to the place of prayer and she's a convert now. And so he's got one church, one church plant partner. He's got, he's got Lydia and he's gonna make some more. He's gonna get a demoniac woman and a, jail, and a jailer. Uh, that's the church plant team. And so... As he, uh, he gets in there, we're gonna, we're gonna drop in as he's starting to deal with the demoniac woman. Uh, and so we're gonna see the four fundamentals of living on mission. Now, these aren't the four. You could go to other texts and find them, but these are the four in this text of what it means to live life on mission. So verse 16, as we were going, and again, the weeds, Paul, Silas, Luke, Timothy. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination That means she's able to see the future uh, and brought her owners much game by fortune telling by fortune telling. So she's owned by these slave owners. They used her as, as like a little circus act. They would put her out there. People would come and pay. She would tell their fortune, this is not from the Lord. This is probably from a demon. She really could do it. And these men would use her uh, as the circus creature. She would tell the future. They would get the money and keep it for themselves and give her nothing. So the owners, Bub and Jethro, kept all the money and bought, you know, bass boats and gold chains. Um, and so uh, kept it all for themselves. They didn't, they didn't Share it all, and they used her. She's an absolute slave to them. She has she has no value in in life in her mind because she's just making money for these people. And it says, whenever Paul went into the city, because she had the spirit of divination, she did know who Paul was. This demoniac, this demon inside her, is helping her see. So it says in verse 17, she followed Paul and us, crying out. She she gave him a bit of an intro to the city as they're walking around, Paul has been called over there. He knows he's supposed to share the gospel. He's going to the place of prayer. That means these are people that are interested in spiritual things. So I know that I can have good gospel conversations here. They're not Christians, they're interested in spiritual things. And while he's trying to have conversations with people, this woman follows him around and it says, she cries out, this is like yelling. These men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, if it's just one time and it's just a quick intro, fine but that's not what happens. Look at this, it says, and she kept doing this (laughs) for many days. Like, can you imagine this one sentence screamed at the top of your lungs around you while you're trying to share the gospel? You know, God, you called me to the city. I'm supposed to be here. And I've got Miss Cleo, like introducing me continually over and over and over, and she won't stop. I can't even talk, she's screaming so loud. And it says, Paul's human, and I love the Bible because it tells us real human emo- emotions, and it says, and Paul, having become greatly annoyed, that's totally human. The Greek there can be that he's either grieved or peeved. <laughs> he's, he's mad or sad, or maybe both. Like, grieved because she's trapped by a demon and he knows, but, you know, mad because she won't stop. Like, just... Stop! These men are most these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim me the way of salvation. These men are servants of the Most High God who just over and over. Like I'm trying to have a conversation, and so um, and he can't, and so he becomes greatly annoyed, and he said to look at that. I love it. The spirit doesn't it say directly to her, "Lady, leave." Right? He understands the spiritual captivity that she has, not just to Bubba and Jethro, but to the demon, and she's like. He looks at the spirit and. In Acts chapter 9, verse 17, when Paul's walking the road to Damascus and he's blinded and he finally gets his sight back, and Acts chapter 9, verse 17 explicitly tells us that Paul then is filled with the Spirit. So now he's walking in the Spirit, living a life of being, being filled with the Spirit, living out a missionary journey. And so he's, because he's filled with the Spirit, he looks and he knows exactly what to do when he looks at this lady and he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and it came out over that very hour. Now, the case that I'm making here is, living on mission is directly related to being filled with the Spirit, and that's exactly what Paul does when he casts the demon out. The first fundamental of living on mission is this. Living on mission re- requires that we live Holy Spirit-filled lives. You say, amen, brother. I believe it, and I've got it. I'm saved, i got the Holy Spirit. Okay, and I agree. Like, one hundred percent. So, what do I mean when I say we're to live Holy Spirit filled lives? Because we know at salvation, the moment that we tr- repent of our sin and trust Christ for our salvation, that we're given the Holy Spirit. One hundred percent of Him. He's not given like a fourth of us. He's all there. So, what do you mean? Be filled, What do you mean to live a Holy Spirit filled life if you're already given the Holy Spirit? Okay, so. In Acts chapter five, verse 18, Paul's talking to the Ephesians, this won't be on the screen. In Acts chapter five, verse 18, you can just you can just listen. He tells these Christians, "Be filled with the Spirit." So he's telling someone who has the Holy Spirit to be filled with the spirit. So there's a way that we can have the Holy Spirit and yet be filled with the spirit. So what, what does that mean? Because if we're supposed to live holy spirit-filled lives and I have the Holy Spirit, but I wanna be filled with the Holy Spirit, then what does that mean? Ephesians chapter five, verse 18 tells us, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. So if you're putting that together, it's not just a verse that says Christians shouldn't get drunk. It means don't fill your body with a substance so that when it's in it, the substance controls you and makes you make bad decisions and you live a life of debauchery. Conversely, same mindset, fill yourself, not with a substance, but the person of the Holy Spirit who controls you, who helps you make decisions, just like wine would, who controls you, helps you make God-honoring righteous decisions, and now you live a Christ-honoring life. So be filled with the Spirit, not wine, but the Spirit, because this is far better than you know a foreign substance. Okay, but you say to me, FUD, great, but it's a passive verb. I know that's exactly what you're thinking. <laughs> be filled with the Spirit. So in grammar, that means that's something happening to me, not something that I'm actively doing. So again, we haven't, you haven't helped me. If I'm to be filled with the Holy Spirit, what do I actively do? Because that's a command. It's in the command form to be filled. How do, I, how do I obey the command of being filled when it's a passive verb? Perfect question. Well... In the same book, and so what, that's why I think this is a great way to think, being filled with the Spirit sounds a lot like something else Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3. So in the, Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21 is the prayer for the Ephesians, and he uses almost exact same language. In Ephesians chapter 3, is two pages over in my Bible, in Ephesians chapter 3, in the very end of verse 19, he uses this language of be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, that sounds a lot like be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with all the fullness of God, be filled with the Spirit. Okay, wonderful, we're, 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 we're working here. If 518 is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but it's passive, perhaps chapter three, where it's be filled, with all the acti- be filled with all the fullness of God is gonna use an active verb, something I can do, not something that happens to me. And it is. So here's what we can do to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm just gonna go jump up to 17 so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. So we're talking about the vastness of the love of Christ. Here it is. Here's how you can actively be filled. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How can you say that? Because it says, so that, or that, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So I wanna submit to all of us here if we're going to live a life of mission filled with the Holy Spirit, what we should do as the people of God is know the love of Christ for you. Do everything you can to study and know and comprehend the love of Christ for you. Be, here on Sundays with the people of God singing about Christ together and learning from Richard as he preaches us through the word so that we can know the love of Christ for us. That's the whole point of a sermon is to engage your affections to love Jesus or be in your community groups where you discuss what you learn so that each of you can mutually encourage each other so that you will know the love of Christ for you and grow in your walk. Read your scriptures every day so that as Dan pointed out two weeks ago, one week ago, whatever it was, that the Bible is all about Jesus. And as I read it, I'm going to see the beauty of the gospel and I know the love of Christ for me. If we're going to live a life of mission, it requires that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's done by knowing the love of Christ. Now, um, you may say, will that make a difference? Uh, I think it will. I think it will. And let's see how it makes a difference in here. So, um, if you go to Acts chapter 16, verse 19. So Paul commands the spirit out of the, out of the slave girl and all of a sudden, because she doesn't have the spirit of divination anymore, she can't foretell the future. So what's that gonna do to Bub and Jethro's uh, you know, money source? Well, it's not gonna help them. So here it is. But when the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they can't make money anymore off this girl, they seize Paul and Silas. So they seized the two Jews, Paul and Silas, not the two Gentiles, Luke uh, and Timothy. Because we're gonna come to this. Suffering sometimes happens to some people and not to others, even though they're all in the same situation. Um, so the owners saw that the hope of game is gone. They seized Paul and Silas dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers, so the, the governing officials at the time, and they brought them in front of the magistrates and they said, these men are Jews. You can see their, their anti-Semitism there. And they're disturbing our city. Some translations say, throwing our city into an uproar. <laughs> a bit of a stretch, but um, they're, they're trying to be liars and clever and, and manipulative. And it says, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So in Roman law, uh, Christianity wasn't you know, like known like it was yet. And so it wasn't an approved religion of the Roman government. And so Roman law was that Roman citizens can't practice what they known as alien cults without the governing officials saying, yes, you're allowed to. And so these clever little guys are going to the Roman magistrates and they're saying, these guys are practicing alien cults that aren't approved. Now, their real motivation is they're mad because they lost money. But what they're trying to do is just get these Paul and Silas arrested, which they do. So here it goes. So they say, they advocate customs that aren't lawful for us. And then the crowd joined in on Paul and Silas, attacking them. And the magistrates then tore their garments off and gave them orders. And here it is. They beat them up with rods. These are long kind of hollow sticks that when you hit it, I mean, it's terrible pain. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they beat them up really bad. They threw them into prison and they ordered the jailer to keep them in there safely. And having received this order, he put them down in the inner prison, the worst part, fastened their feet in the stocks, which brings me to my second point. Four fundamentals of living on Christian. Second one is living on mission means that we will likely suffer for the cause of Christ. We will likely suffer for the cause of Christ. Uh, A lot of Christians have coffee cup verses. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion, day of completion in Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. I know the plans I have for you, you know, Jeremiah 29.11, but I don't see too many coffee cups with this particular verse on it. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not too many t-shirts having that one. Um, Or something like this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So for Christ, rejoice and be glad. Love it when that happens. For, making an argument, your reward is great in heaven. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we know that it's absolutely biblical that when we're walking in obedience to Jesus, living on mission, telling people about Christ, suffering is probably going to happen. We know that it's going to happen. So, How can we understand God's design in suffering? If we know that it's gonna happen, we know that it's biblical, how can we understand it? Uh, Dan used this verse, I think it was last week, and I love trying to help us understand. Uh, Understanding God's design in suffering for this light and momentary affliction as we're suffering for Christ is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So Paul is saying light and momentary in comparison to eternity, which means for our 75 or 85 years we get on heaven, light means difficult, momentary means maybe your whole life. But in comparison to eternity, it's preparing for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So suffering, when it happens in light of the glory that's gonna be revealed to us, it's absolutely worth it. That's God's design. He says the same similar thing in Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. So when we're experiencing suffering for the cause of Christ and it's unbearable, he, Paul says, you can't even compare that conversely to the unbelievable glory you'll behold when you see Christ. It's worth it. It's always worth it. John Piper says, there's not a culture or an ethnic group or society or religion or a language where Jesus does not have the right to be worshiped as Lord. And so uh, he has the authority to be king and Lord and savior everywhere. And the reason he commands us to make disciples, and this is the reason why he he commands us to make disciples over all the world. And so for an order for us to fulfill the great commission, every nation, is going to need to hear the gospel and we must be willing to suffer for the persecution of the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the God appointed way for the great commission to happen. On the path towards fulfilling the great commission, Christians martyrs blood will most likely be shed and God will be glorified both in the means and the end. The means of the martyrs blood and the end of them coming to know Christ. Matthew 24, 14 this whole thing's not over until every ethnic group hears. Matthew twenty four fourteen. this gospel must be preached to all the nations, the ethne, and then the end will come. Jesus' second coming, it will happen when every ethnic group in the world hears. So we ask ourselves then, is this suffering worth it? When we're obeying God, is it worth it? It is worth it. It's absolutely worth it. In 16th century in Europe, uh, two prisoners were having a conversation one of them was going to be killed for his faith the next day. This is an excerpt from the Jesus Freaks book, uh, DC Talk. Anybody down with the DC Talk? Down with the D- I won't do it, all right. Um, Thomas, his friend says to him, the two prisoners in jail. Thomas, his friend lowered his voice as to not be heard by the guard. I have to ask you this, Thomas, I need a favor. I need to know if what the others say about Christianity, about the grace of God, if it's true, I need to know tomorrow when they burn you at the stake and if the pain is tolerable and your mind is set at peace, tomorrow when they burn you, will you lift your hands above your head? Thomas, do it right before you die so that I know that Christ is worth it. I have to know. Thomas says to his friend, okay, I will. The next morning they take Thomas Halker and bound him at the stake. They put the fire, uh, light the fire and so Thomas is burning now for his faith. The fire burned a long time but Halker Thomas Hacker was completely motionless. His skin was absolutely burned to his crisp and his fingers were absolutely gone already. Everyone watched, supposed that he was dead now. Suddenly, miraculously, Hauker lifts his hands, still on fire for his friend. Over his head, he reached up to the living God and with great rejoicing, clapped them together three times. The people broke out into shouts of praise and applause and Thomas Hauker's friend had his answer. And so we ask ourselves, is it worth it to suffer for Christ? It's worth it. It's absolutely worth it to put Christ on display to a lost and dying world. It's absolutely worth it. How does Paul show us it's worth it? Well, let's see what happens. Now, if we are uh, bringing ourselves into the story, Paul is beaten, he's thrown into prison He's, he's given a dream, go share the gospel, okay? I'm trying to share the gospel, and what happens? He's thrown in jail, he's beaten up. I mean, he is, has all of his clothes taken off of him, beaten really bad, so bad that they had put many blows on him and threw him into prison, and if, I was in this mo- if all of us are in this moment, it would be easy to think, God, what's going on? I'm trying to obey you. You put me in the inner stocks, this is the worst part, the lowest, don't think you know modern prisons with weight benches and cable and air conditioning. This is nasty, dank, urine-stained, filled floors, fecal matter everywhere, down in the inner stocks, bound so that they could whip their feet so they couldn't even walk anymore or lift them up and hang them upside down and they would lay on their back. This is where Paul is, unbelievably painful, All of us, it would be easy to think, why am I in this dank, dark, gross prison, God? I don't understand why this has happened. How would you react? What would be your moment? I pray that every single one of us would do exactly what Paul does does right here. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Paul says, I know what this is, a great time for a worship service. Hunter, get out here and bring your acoustic guitar. It's time for a worship service. The Lord put us in prison and we're suffering. Let's praise him. Which I think leads us to our next one. Four fundamentals of living on mission. Living on mission means we choose to worship God in all occasions, especially in the midst of difficulties. We want to worship. We want to worship. John Stott says it this way and it's, it's so wonderful. So it is wonderful that in such pain with lacerated backs and aching limbs, Paul and Silas about midnight were praying and singing hymns to God. Not groans, but songs came from their mouths. Instead of cursing men, they blessed God. No wonder the prisoners were listening to them and rejoicing. And so Paul understands here that God is the most beautiful reality in all the world and that every single one of us are created to worship. You're worshiping right now. As a matter of fact, every human is worshiping right now, Christian or not. They're either worshiping God or themselves or a thing or money. But Paul understands the most most important thing to do is to worship the Lord. We were created to worship God. For the rest of our life, every decision we ever make is designed for us to worship. Every decision's worship. C.S. Lewis talks about this in one of his books, on the Christ-minded living or Christ-minded worship living. He writes this, I have a long quote, but I I have to shorten it a little. If we consider, he says, the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised us in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord Jesus finds our desires as humans not too strong, but too weak. We don't ever really try hard things. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't even imagine what's meant by by the offer of the holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. Infinite joy is offered to us to live a life of worship. And most oftentimes we can choose triviality. So don't be easily pleased with ease and comfort. Do the hard thing. Have the difficult conversation. Give your money to the things of heaven, not to the things of the earth. Stand up for Jesus at work. Are you going to finally have the hard conversation with your spouse? That's worship. How are you finally, what are the words you're gonna use when you have that conversation? That's worship. Are you going to spend your money on heavenly things? That's worship. Are you going to discipline your children for Christ's sake? That's worship. Are you gonna honor God with your job and with your coworkers and stand up for Christ? Are you finally going to share the gospel with that lost person that you know needs to hear it? That's worship. First Corinthians ten thirty one says it this way. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, literally starts with the most basic things that we're gonna do three times a day and expands it to, or go to Russia and share the gospel. The hardest things we can do in life. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Every decision we do is worship. And so living life on mission means we live um, willingly to live uh, lives of worship. So what's Paul going to do here? Is he going to choose worship? Well, here's what happens. Of course he does because we saw the worship service and how does God use that? Here's what happens. Verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Paul's thinking, awesome, an earthquake. This is the perfect chance for not running, sharing the gospel. Because every moment is a gospel moment for Paul, which it should be for us. Because God's sovereign over earthquakes and he had the the Macedonians say, come, he knew he was supposed to share the gospel. And so he thinks, oh, this is perfect. I'm gonna share the gospel. I've got freedom on my right hand to run, but I also have a cruel man who tortured me on my left. I'm gonna take him so I can share the gospel with him so that he can come to know Christ. And so he tells nobody to run. And when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself. Because if you're a Roman prisoner and your, guards, your, your prisoners get away, they're going to kill you. And so he's like, well, instead of waiting, I'll just do it myself. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, everybody's here because earthquakes are gospel moments for Paul. Difficult circumstances in your life are gospel moments for you. And the jailer called for lights, rushed in, trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and he says, now we would say, why didn't you run? (laughs) Right? The worship service in verse 25 ended all that. He knows exactly why they didn't run. He doesn't need to ask that question. He has one question. That's all he needs to ask. The worship service, choosing to worship in hard circumstances leads to, sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's never happened to me. Like that's that simple, meet a stranger. How do I be saved? Man, I, I, I want it teed up like that, but... You know, maybe the Lord will will bring that to us. And what does Paul say? If you're ever thinking, I don't know how to share the gospel, I need a nice succinct one sentence way to share the gospel. Here's one. This is a great one. Here it is. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's perfect. Which brings us to our fourth one. Living on mission means that every, that evangelism should naturally happen through you. Evangelism is proclaiming Jesus as the way to salvation, telling them the good news of the gospel. We should do that. Because Paul had the worship service, he had had an easy way to tell them about Christ. Now, J.I. Packer, uh, a theologian, tells us the definition of evangelism. Let's make sure we understand. Evangelism is message delivered, not effect produced. Evangelism is telling them about Jesus, not saving them. That's up to God. We obey by telling them God's the one that does the work. So, uh, Something that convicted me a while. I was looking at the book of Acts a while back. And um, if you go through it, just notice this. Look at the book of Acts today and see that Christians gathered together, they told the gospel, and then you'll see this wording, and the Lord added to their number. Then Christians gathered together in chapter three. They told people about Jesus and the Lord added to their number. Then chapter four, Christians gathered together, they told people about Jesus and the Lord added to their number. Over and over, when Christians get together, They should tell the people around them about Jesus that don't know it. And then, well, we have the same Holy Spirit and the same message. We're Christians gathered together. We should be gathered together, telling people about Jesus, and then the Lord should be adding to our number. There's 35,000 people in Spartanburg, 355,000 people in Spartanburg County, probably 20% are saved. If if 40,000 people got saved in Spartanburg County, we'd throw a party. But we would still have, 200,000 that aren't saved. We're not scratching the surface. The sleeping giant of the evangelical church has to be awakened to reach this this country. Um, I wanna close with this. There's a missionary, a pastor, John Harper. He was born in Scotland in 1872. He became a Christian at age 14. At age 17, he started street peach, preaching. Uh, and five or six years of doing street preaching. Then at verse 20, at, at sorry, verse, at age 23, he began pastoring a church uh, and he grew from 25 people to 500. And so during those 13 years of his pastorate, uh, he was, got to about age 36, he had a wife and then he had a child um, and then his wife passed away. It was just he and his child, he and his little daughter, Nana. Uh, and back over in the States, the famous Moody Church was growing and invited John Harper, come to the States we want you to be a part of our revival meetings. And he declined. They asked him another three years later and he said, okay, I'll come. And so he and his little daughter Nana get on the boat to come over uh, for him to do the preaching at Moody Church. And about midnight, the boat struck an iceberg. We know where we're going here, right? Near, far, wherever you are. Um, And so, I won't sing it. And so Harper put his little daughter on Nana on the lifeboat, and we know, you know the familiar thing is you know women and children go and men don't, and so she survived. But the rest of the story is very little is known. But it says this. But we do know what happened to John Harper because later on, in Hamilton, Ontario, uh, in, in Canada, we hear the story of what happened to John Harper a very young Scotsman stood up in a prayer meeting and he told an extraordinary story of how he was converted. He explained that he had also been on the night, on the Titanic the night was struck and he was hanging onto a piece of floating debris in the freezing waters and suddenly the waves uh, washed a man over to him named John Harper and he was also holding a piece of the ship and John Harper yells at him. He goes, man, are you saved? And he goes, no, I'm not. And he says this text, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. And then the waves washed John Harper away. And he lay there uh, by himself, this man. And then a little bit later, waves washed John Harper back over to him. And he goes, hey, are you saved now? (laughs) And he's like, no, not yet. And then he says the text, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. And as he said that, he let go of his debris and he fell down in the water and he passed away. And the man says this, he sank in the water, and there alone in the night, with two miles of water under me, I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'm John Harper's last convert. John Harper died evangelizing. This is how we're to live. This is exactly how we're to live. I want to close with this quote from Hudson Taylor. When you see church, think Hoe Point. Would that God make hell so real to Hope Point Church that we could not rest? Billions are going to hell. Would he also make heaven so real that we must have men there? And we make Christ so real that our supreme motive and aim should be to make Jesus their joy by their conversion. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.